Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We're turning to God's Word tonight, and it's a delight to welcome uh, the Reverend Luke LaDuke, senior pastor over at Wheatland Presbyterian Church, our sister church right across town. Uh, It's been a joy for me to work with Luke on a a presbytery committee for a number of years and grow in our friendship, and we're just thankful that he's here to bring God's Word to us tonight. I told him when I reached out to him, I said, I'm looking for the local expert on Leviticus. And uh, so here, here, here we are, the local expert on Leviticus. Wow, no pressure. Um, it is a joy to be with you all tonight. Um, and how I got to be the local expert was an ill-advised uh, foray last fall, uh, 10 weeks at Wheatland in Leviticus. I thought that'd be a great idea. Let's do 10 weeks in Leviticus. Well, we did it. Um, no, it was, it was uh, a wonderful time in God's Word, sort of seeing, as you've already said, Chris, uh, the shadows uh, in Leviticus of what Christ would do in, in his life and death and resurrection. Um, this evening, our sermon text is from Leviticus chapter 16. I'm going to not read the entire chapter to you, but I do want to read a couple of passages from it. I'm going to read Uh, verses 1 through 10, verse 16, and then verses 29 and 34. I'll read the text and then pray. Hear God's word. The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron your brother not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil, before the mercy seat that's on the ark, so that he may not die. For I will appear in the cloud over the mercy seat, but in this way Aaron shall come into the holy place, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat and shall have the linen undergarment on his body, and he shall tie the linen sash around his waist and wear the linen turban. These are the holy garments. He shall bathe his body in water and then put them on. And he shall take from the congregation of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. And Aaron shall offer the bull as a sin offering for himself and shall make atonement for himself and for his house. Then he shall take the two goats and set them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting And Aaron shall cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for Azazel. And Aaron shall present the goat on which the lot fell for the Lord and use it as a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot fell for Azazel shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement over it, that it may be sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. And then verse 16 Thus Aaron shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. 
And finally, 29 through the end of the chapter. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. And the priest who is anointed and consecrated as priest in his father's place shall make atonement wearing the holy linen garments. He shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary, and he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar And he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. And this shall be a statute forever for you, that atonement may be made for the people of Israel once in the year because of all their sins. And Aaron did as the Lord commanded Moses. I hope you heard in that reading all of these ritual clothes and movements and actions. And that's what I want us to reflect on tonight. What do all of these ritual movements mean? I want to pull out two of those for us to contemplate together. Let's pray. Gracious God, we stand humbled before your love for us in Jesus. And we stand humbled before your great plan from eternity past to bring your wayward and sinful people back into your life-giving presence. Father, during this Lenten season, may we recover repentance, the way back into your presence, not as drudgery, but as joyful returning to you, our Father who welcomes us through the blood of your Son, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we are, as a people, as a denomination, descendants of the Protestant Reformation in Europe from the 16th century. And in fact, not only that, but we are Reformed Protestants who protested and reformed the shape that the Protestant Reformation had taken here in America at the turn of the 20th century. Grace upon grace, you might say. And I say, amen, always reforming. But as reformed Protestants, we may find ourselves with very little imagination or tolerance for ritual symbolism in worship. I get it. The abuses of it in the medieval church were undeniable. And while I completely understand how we got here, I think an unintended consequence is that Leviticus 16 that we've just read, which, by the way, is at the very center and heart of Leviticus, and by the way, Leviticus is at the very center and heart of the first five books of Moses— But Leviticus, particularly Leviticus 16, can be a difficult read for us. Maybe you felt that just a few minutes ago as I read it. With all of its ritual symbolism, tonight I want to invite us 
to take a step forward, perhaps. Not many steps, but maybe one small step forward in hearing and understanding Leviticus and ritual symbolism that we've just heard here from Leviticus 16. See, at the very heart and soul of the tabernacle worship and and all of Israel's culture of worship was what we have just heard tonight, God's atonement for sin. God's work on behalf of sinners to bring them back into his life-giving presence. And this evening, in our time in Leviticus 16, I want us to see Not just from Leviticus 16, but I want us to grasp that atonement has always been the defining movement of God toward his people. Atonement is God's movement toward his people who are broken by sin, dying in exile. Atonement is God's clearly marked path for his children back into his life-giving presence. Now, one sermon could never do for covering this many-layered and richly textured work of God in atonement. In fact, the whole of our lives, in a sense, are to be this ongoing and ever-deepening journey into the beauty and grace and life found in God's costly atonement of his people from all of our sinful rejection of his love. It's our life. But, but this evening, I want us to consider two ritual movements that we've just heard in chapter 16 that are meaningful and, and actually moving, I think, for us if we have the lens through which that we can see, uh, a lens through which we can see what these ritual movements symbolize. And first is this, the westward journey of the high priest into the very holy of holies is a ritual movement that means atonement reverses the course of sinful humanity. Let me explain. The scriptures tell one story from beginning to end of God's love and God's desire to dwell with his people. How a story begins, as you know, is incredibly important to the shape that that story, that story will take as it unfolds. So this evening, we have to go back for just a moment to Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, and I trust you know that story, humanity rejects God as their life. And in Genesis 3, humanity seeks a new source of life, not God, but they seek their life in creation rather than in their creator. And in chapter 3, when humanity does this, they are driven east out of the garden. I've lost home field advantage, Chris. Where is east in this sanctuary? Is it behind me? This way, east. Humanity is driven east out of the Garden of Eden after this sin. And at the point in which they're escorted out of Eden, God blockades humanity from returning by placing in their way cherubim and a flaming sword. And that was a symbol of their expulsion from the garden. I want you to just remember that symbolism for now of, of the cherubim, the cherubim blocking access 
back to the garden, to life, to flourishing. The last verse of Genesis 3 literally says that the cherubim and flaming sword were put there to guard the way to the tree of life. And this sent humanity on a ritual exile eastward, away from God's presence in the garden, away from life. And in the very next chapter in Genesis, humanity continues to turn its back on God. In Genesis 4, Cain murders his brother Abel, and he is sent further on this ritual exile eastward away from God's presence. Genesis 4.15 says, Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Moving forward in the story a little bit, in Genesis 11, it seems that the Tower of Babel was a human effort to recreate an access point to God. And the people who sought to do this the scriptures say, were people on the move from the east, according to Genesis 11.2. A bit later, in Genesis 13.11, Lot journeyed east, if you remember, separating from Abraham. This movement east then, particularly in the opening chapters of the story, of which Leviticus 16 is at the very heart of, it's one story, But this movement east, though not woodenly, was symbolic for exile from God's presence and life. And this seems to be the trajectory of God's people in the scriptures as they turn their back on God's presence. But when we arrive at Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, something wonderful is happening. The ritual movements of Aaron that we've just read about, the high priest on the Day of Atonement, are movements westward, back into the tabernacle. A literal reverse in direction for humanity. And this movement will escort Aaron, ritually representing all of Israel, back into the life-giving presence of God. The court of the tabernacle, you may not remember this, but the court of the tabernacle was situated in such a way that the entire place was laid out with the entrance at the east and the holy of holies at the far west. So from the camp of Israel, wherever Israel happened to set up their camp, to enter the tabernacle, you would walk west. You would walk past the ash pit and then the altar and then the laver and then you would come to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And if you went into the tent of meeting, you had to continue west through the curtain. And if you remember, what did the curtain have on it? Cherubim woven into that curtain. And then into the holy place you would go where the table of bread was on your right and the lampstand on your left. And if you kept journeying west, you would pass the altar of incense and then through another curtain with what? More cherubim woven into it, into the holy of holies where the ark of the covenant stood, facing east and the entrance of the tent of meeting. The symbolism of what is happening here on this day of atonement must not be missed. Remember, Adam and Eve in their sin must leave the garden. 
They're exiled east, and cherubim are posted to keep them from making their way back to God's presence in Eden, to the tree of life. But here, in Leviticus 16, in a sense, for the first time since Eden, sinful humanity, Aaron, we know Aaron's history. He's made a golden calf already. He is not pure as the driven snow. Sinful humanity in Aaron, representing God's people, Israel, and their sinfulness, Aaron himself is ushered all the way into the very presence of God in the Holy of Holies. And Aaron's presence there is what? He is there to atone for the sins of himself and his people by bringing God's gracious provision, this blood of a bull and goat, to sprinkle upon the mercy seat for the sins of the people. As one theologian puts it, the one welcomed back into the very presence of God is the Adam-like high priest with blood, on the Day of Atonement. This is the way God has opened for humanity to dwell in his presence. What we're seeing in this ritual, symbolic move, this way past those cherubim from Genesis 3, uh, guarding the way back to life, what we're seeing is a movement that God has graciously orchestrated to bring his people back to himself. Humanity's persistent exile eastward, away from God's presence, away from life, away from flourishing, into darkness and chaos and death, on this day of atonement comes to a screeching halt, this glorious and holy day in Israel's year. Once per year, the high priest will enter the very presence of God, behind those cherubim, emblazoned with their imagery, into the most holy place with the blood of a bull and a goat. And that blood will atone for, it will cleanse the sins of God's people. And this is what is at the very heart of Leviticus. See, sin was a force it was a force rushing the world. In the opening story, in the first five books of the Bible, sin is a force and it is rushing the world back towards the chaos and the death and the emptiness of the world before it was created. And the residue of that was everywhere. God would use blood because it is the image and essence of life, to purify and atone for sins, and he would use this blood to symbolize the end of exile by a death. Atonement through a gracious and God-initiated sacrificial substitution of bull and goat is what allows the psalmist to write, In Psalm 103, these powerful and stunning words that never get old, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, there is atonement. God in his mercy and grace has opened up the way here, back into his presence for his sinful and wayward people through 
atonement. And in verses 7 through 10 of chapter 16, Aaron will take the goat not chosen as sacrifice, and he will lay its hand, his hands upon its head. And according to Leviticus 16.21, he will confess over that goat all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions, all their sins, and he shall put them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness. The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free in the wilderness. Again, The image is unmistakable. Humanity goes westward back into the very presence of God, into the holy of holies, to find forgiveness and life through the poured out blood of atonement while their sins are carried by this scapegoat back eastward into the chaos and death of the wilderness to which Psalm 103 again will sing out, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Atonement is the way opened for humanity to dwell in God's presence. Leviticus 16 is this startling image for us that tells us there is a way back to life from all of our death. But in fact, the atonement goes beyond just cleansing us personally, although it does that. The day of atonement blood, we learn in Leviticus 16, even purifies the spaces that we have polluted by our steady march away from God toward death. Listen to verse 16 again. Thus Aaron shall make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And so he shall do for the tent of meeting, which dwells with them in the midst of their uncleannesses. Not only are the people atoned for, but the holy place, the tent of meeting, along with the court of the tabernacle are purified. See, creation Genesis 1 and 2 in the beginning of the story is that heaven and earth were meant to be together in one place in joyful union and intimate communion. Heaven and earth, God and his people were together there in Genesis 1 and 2 in a world bursting with God's glory. Resounding with worship back to him in gratitude and love. But the sin of Adam and Eve ruptured that union. And now, not only humanity, which we've already talked about in their journey eastward, but now the very earth itself suffers this unthinkable fracture because of human sin and death. It's not just the people. It's their space, polluted by the steady growth of sin and death. It's the space that needs cleansing and atonement as well. And when we sit with Leviticus 16 and see that on this day of atonement, not only are the people and their sins being atoned for, but the tabernacle itself, the space it occupies is being cleansed and fit for God's dwelling, we're witnessing another ritual movement. Listen to verse 33. Aaron shall make atonement for the holy sanctuary And he shall make atonement for the tent of meeting and for the altar. 
and he shall make atonement for the priests and for all the people of the assembly. See, the tabernacle was not simply a bit of shade for God and the priests to get in out of the blazing sun there in that part of the world. The tabernacle itself was constructed back in the book of Exodus to actually represent the world. It was a symbolic picture of God's creation, the universe. The imagery all over the tabernacle is Garden of Eden imagery. It's trees and fruit and cherubim. And and this means that there are wider implications in this ritual movement on the Day of Atonement than perhaps we've considered before. The cleansing of the Holy of Holies, the tent of meeting, the altar, the priests, and the people in that order. This means that this atonement is the very beginning of reconciling and reuniting heaven and earth. What was shattered seemingly beyond repair by human sin? Our own humanity, the world, civilization is beginning to be put back together by a blood atonement for sin. But brothers and sisters, these ritual movements together, as Chris has already read for us, are only a shadow. They're a pointer. They're the first muted words of the glorious good news of what Jesus Christ has done for us in his sacrificial death on the cross. Our sin, our shame, our guilt, the weight of real and deep traumas that you and I have experienced in our bodies that we carry in our souls, the rejection and abandonment that we have experienced at the hands of those who were meant to love us and protect us. All of these things that together shatter us into pieces and become this powerful undercurrent dragging us away into exile from love and flourishing and life from God himself. All those things, brothers and sisters, because of Jesus, those things do not have the final word. Because Jesus, raised up on a cross as our atoning sacrifice, reverses the course of humanity. Jesus' death as our substitute and sacrifice makes atonement with his own blood. Jesus's, Hebrews 9 tells us that Jesus did not enter a sanctuary made with human hands like Aaron did. But Jesus appeared in the very presence of God on our behalf to sprinkle not a blood of a bull or a goat, which was just read for us, could never take away sins, but Jesus comes into God's presence to sprinkle his own blood and atone for our sins. Brothers and sisters, this is the news we are so desperate to hear again this Lenten season. You, because of the sacrifice and blood of Jesus, you will not be overwhelmed and overcome by your sins. 
This defining moment has happened. The course of humanity's sinful exile from God has been reversed in Jesus. You will not be drowned by the evil that others have committed against you if you will embrace in hope and faith this evening this one who has given himself as an atoning sacrifice for your sins. You will find forgiveness and love with your Father who longs to give you life in his presence. As Colossians, in Colossians 1, Paul promises us that the blood of Jesus at his cross is reconciling all things to himself. All the things that have been ripped apart by our sin, our humanity, our families, our friendships, our very world itself, will not explode from all the chaos and disorder and death that is rampant. In Jesus, heaven and earth will be united again. All that is broken in the world will be mended in Jesus. That's the sort of Lenten hope we need. All the just judgment that we long for, but in our humanity and in our sinfulness can only fumble and stumble toward, will one day be realized because atonement has reversed the course of humanity's exile. And friends, our response to God's gracious movement toward us is to turn from all of our persistent movement away from him, from all of our sin, by repentance, by turning back to the only place where real human flourishing and true life are found, God and his presence. See, this Lenten season, our reflection together tonight, this work that you are doing each and every Wednesday night during this Lenten season, is meant to be for all of us a season of sustained and focused repentance. Friends, where are the places that you are still living in exile from God's love tonight? Perhaps tonight you find yourself paralyzed, either by your own sin or the sins of others against you. Perhaps your fear or despair has overwhelmed you where you are. This is why the season of Lent is a journey together as God's people. Speak to someone you trust. Tell them you need their help. But brothers and sisters, do not stay away a moment longer. Repentance is not drudgery. It is a joyful reunion from all of our places of exile back into our Father's loving and life-giving presence through the atoning death of Jesus. By the blood of his cross, he will put back together all that's broken. By the blood of his cross, he will gather up all that's been shattered and scattered. This is the heart of Leviticus, and it's the heart of the entire scriptures. May God give us the humility to receive it and the courage to embrace it. In the name of the Father, the Son, 
and the Holy Spirit. Gracious Father, we bow our heads and hearts before you and we give you thanks that in your mercy and in your grace, you would not let us be carried away by our sin. But that all along you have been moving towards your sinful, stubborn people in atonement. And what you started all the way back here in Leviticus 16, you have brought to its beautiful completion in Jesus. And you are bringing that atonement to its fullness in the day when heaven and earth are reunited and Jesus comes as our king to put all things right, to put down death and evil and oppression forever. Lord, until that day, particularly in these moments, in this season together, may we be your people, people who are turning back to you and finding in the poured out blood of Jesus, our life in your presence, flourishing and forgiveness. For my brothers and sisters who are frail and hurting, for my brothers and sisters tonight who are overwhelmed and fearful, may your love in Jesus draw them back by your powerful spirit. And may this be a time where you Find us as your people with open hearts, repenting and joyfully being reunited to you. We give you thanks and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.